0: The Easter music really preaches the sermon. (laughs) Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from Luke, the 24th chapter, verses one through 12, which can be found on page 1642 in your Red Pew Bible. Listen now to this word from God. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending down, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, amazed at what had happened. The word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, come. Come, roll away the stone. Open our eyes and our hearts and our ears and our minds. Amen. That first Easter didn't feature anything close to what we experience these days. There were no floppy hats and white gloves, no wall of white hydrangeas, no pastel rainbow of jelly beans in hot pink and lime green plastic eggs. There were no beautifully rendered versions of Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. It was not originally A day of celebration, it was a day of consternation. Anyone who has walked a journey of grief will understand that three days is simply not long enough to rise up out of the fog of shock, much less the devastation of loss. This ragtag group of Jesus' followers on that first Easter, they are flattened. They have just watched their teacher, preacher, healer, and friend walk himself into the jaws of mockery and execution at the hands of the government. They watched him wash his betrayer's feet, and they watched him walk in front of the wooden beams all the way through the streets up to Golgotha. They stood by, sometimes denying him, Sometimes on the fringes, silently agonizing at the taunting and the killing, they watch their Lord be crucified, thirst, bleed, and die. Jesus' followers are inconsolable and they are rudderless. The one in charge who always had the right answer, who comforted them with a twinkle in his eye and puzzled them with his parables of inclusion and grace, they had a front row seat for his death. And if it weren't bad enough that he has been ripped from their grasp, his body is now missing. They cannot even gently anoint his body with their perfumes of tender care. I love, love, love that the discoverers of the empty tomb are the women, the same ones who wept at the foot of his cross, now with their hands full of prepared spices. Back in biblical times, preparation of the body with spices was an act of love, but it also had a very pragmatic purpose, to neutralize or at least to diminish the unpleasant odors of decay. In reading Luke's account this time around, I had this thought. What was the women's plan for when they got to the tomb? If there was this larger-than-life stone that was blocking the entrance of the tomb, how were they gonna roll it away? Did they think about this? And more awesome still, did they even care? I have this visual of the women so stricken with grief and consumed by love, that they would just lean their bodies against the side of that stone, silently pressing anything to get as close to their Jesus as they possibly could. It's the kind of stubborn love that God and Jesus has shown to them, and in their darkest moment, the women reflect back the divine love that never lets go even in the face of impossible odds. But surprise, surprise to them and to the whole world, the stone has already been rolled away. This tomb is as empty as they feel. They go to grieve and they leave puzzled and disoriented. And my favorite line of Luke's account of this empty tomb when the dazzlingly white men ask the petrified women a poignant Easter question, why do you look for the living among the dead? The women were certain Jesus was gone. They lingered at the foot of the cross, wailing and weeping. You remember they were the last to pack it up and go home on Good Friday. This is a full stop. Jesus is dead. His body is safe and secure behind this enormous stone, sealed, done, the end. Of course, they are looking for the dead among the dead. The absolutely absurd undertone of the angel's question is that the women could have been expecting life instead of ashes. In our world, dead things stay dead. When in your life have you experienced the end of the road? When things as they were have passed away, and now, whether you like it or not, there's a new reality. Life is full of changing seasons, of jobs ending, of goodbyes we'd rather not say, of wars waging, of loved ones leaving, Why are we looking for the dead among the dead? Because that's the way we think life goes on this side of heaven. People we love die. And then we do the next thing. We visit the tomb to prepare the body with spices. We commemorate our loved ones and we wonder how in the world we will muddle through without them. But this morning the angels are telling a different truth they're offering another way. Our dead ends are not dead ends to God. When we are weary and stuck and exhausted and deflated, when we are doubled over in sorrow, God shows us, however slowly, that the story's not over. God rolls away the stones of our darkest, coldest tombs to offer us love and grace. Shock? Yes. Surprise? Maybe even terror? Yes. New life? Yes. It is hugely comforting to me that when faced with these dazzling angels, the women bow down, terrified, and then run to tell the others. That's exactly right. When we get a hint of a silver lining from what we were sure was only heartache and loss, we don't immediately get out our pom-poms or our party hats. We very gradually and clumsily start to live into whatever blessing of new life is stowed away in the center of what felt like loss. The empty tomb does not necessarily mean all sunshine and roses and life will be perfect always and forevermore. What the empty tomb does mean is that God is always finding a way, that there is simply nothing in life or in death that can separate us from the love of God. There's a church pastor, Tom Long, who thought it fitting to have the graduates of the church's confirmation class profess their faith in front of the congregation on an Easter Sunday. These young people had studied the Bible, they had learned the traditions of the faith, and here today they were to stand and profess their trust in their God. They were all lined up, nervous and excited to demonstrate their scripture prowess. Pastor Long says, George, what shall separate you from the love of God? George stands up. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. George beamed. His parents beamed, the congregation beamed, one after the other of these confirmands quoted the scripture from Romans 8, 38. The congregation stirred with anxiety as it grew closer to Rachel's turn. Rachel was a child with a warm smile and easy grace, a special needs child, a child with Down syndrome. Finally, it is her turn. Rachel, what shall separate you from the love of God? Rachel flashed her beautiful smile and replied from the tip of her toes, nothing. My mind doesn't comprehend what happened on Easter morning any better than those first women who bent their heads into the empty tomb, stooping and stunned. But what my heart knows at the dawn's light of Easter Sunday is this, that there is no stone too great for God to overturn when our hands graze the chilled stone of the tragic, Easter brings Christ's gospel. There is no dead end in our life that prevents new and vibrant life. Death is not death to God. God is life, and God is life abundantly. Nothing will separate us from God not our two small theologies, not our shame for our past, not our busted-up relationships, not despair or anger, not war or abuse, not terrorism nor greed, not our doubt or our fear or our jealousy or our pain. Nothing. That, y'all, is news worthy of a trumpet section and a fried chicken luncheon. (laughs) That is cause for both consternation and celebration. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.